Hi, this is Jill Shaw, and I'm here with Ross Wilson. We're here to introduce a special series of Last Night at School Committee, focused on the search for a new superintendent of the Boston Public Schools. It's seven episodes, including a compilation of views that we heard from 14 important community leaders in Boston. And individual interviews with the past six superintendents of Boston, including Tommy Chang and Brenda Casilius. We ask these guests their views on the type of leader that Boston needs now and the priorities for our public school system. The question is, Ross, who will be successful in the role? Yes, and what can Bostonians do to make the next superintendent's term impactful and successful? Today, Ross and I are joined by current Boston Public Schools Superintendent Brenda Casilius, who has served since 2019 and will be leaving BPS at the end of the school year. Dr. Casilius, welcome. Thank you for joining Ross and me today to talk about being superintendent in Boston Public Schools. Uh, we really appreciate having you. No, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be on the show. Thank you. So I'm going back to 2018. You were hired to run Boston Public Schools by the BPS School Committee and Mayor Walsh at the time. You've you've 2019. served under 2019. Okay. So you had a very short tenure then before COVID hit. Yes, very short tenure yeah. before COVID hit in 2020, right? March 17th. Right. So I was only here for from July 1st when I first got here and then did the 100-day tour. And then COVID hit. It was a very busy fall. Yeah. Yeah. It probably sent you and everyone else for a you know, complete 180. So thinking about when you agreed to become superintendent of Boston Public Schools, and at that point it was pre-COVID and under Mayor Walsh, do you talk a little bit about what you were thinking about as you came into the city, what you were hoping to accomplish, what your first impressions were of the city and the district and the BPS community? Well, look, I was really, really excited to come into Boston, super excited. I had done my research and also had talked with Dr. Carol Johnson, who is a mentor of mine, about it and said, you know, what are the pros and cons about the superintendency and what would be your thoughts about me being able to lead and to come into the community, be accepted into the community and, you know, really put forward a strong strategic plan around equity. And so I was extremely excited to come to Boston. And it was just such a beautiful city. Oh, that's amazing. So you were coming from Minnesota. You were serving before coming here as the commissioner of education in Minnesota. And so how did coming from that role influence how you thought about running a district? How did it prepare you to work with Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education? So I was really excited after having eight years and being one of the longest serving state chief school officers in the nation. I think I was second at the time. And so I knew a lot about Massachusetts because our teams would work together. And so I was really, really excited about it. And sometimes we'd go toe to toe because Minnesota was second to Massachusetts. And so we would joke about it all the time. So I was quite familiar with Boston and Massachusetts uh, Department of Education. So I think that that prepared me well. And I also really thought, you know, having the experience, the political experience, because one of the things I heard about of Boston was that it could be a little bit of a tough place to lead in politically. And so I thought having served an executive, serving directly with the Mark Dayton, who was the governor after eight years, and then now serving with the mayor, because, you know, as much as we want to, you know, talk about the school committee, it is really a mayoral control city. And there's a lot of influence from the mayor's office. So I knew that I had to have a good relationship with the mayor. So I was really looking forward to 
establishing a children's cabinet, being able to leverage all of the city resources toward our strategic plan. And as you know, we really worked hard to get a strategic plan right away in the first six months and then get the commitment from Mayor Walsh for a $100 million annual, you know, we were building up for three years, but a $100 million annual ongoing investment in our operational fund so that we could fund the kind of supports that we needed for children in order for them to cheese and to, and to close gaps and accelerate learning. And then the pandemic hit and we were able to really rally the resources with the pandemic response, which was absolutely, I think, quite remarkable of what we were able to accomplish. But obviously it stalled some of our plans for our strategic planning, but we were able then to get back on our feet in 2020. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's interesting what you say about Boston being primarily, from an education perspective, controlled by the mayor and that the school committee is functioning on behalf of the mayor. And so thinking about that, I mean, you swiftly came in and built a great relationship with Mayor Walsh. But what do you think that does to education in a city when the mayor has so much control? You know, it it is a real true partnership. I met with the school committee chairman almost every day talking and texting and talking to him and, you know, trying to figure out what to do. And then also meeting with Mayor Walsh weekly, keeping him abreast. And so it's really incumbent upon the superintendent to navigate those relationships with both your school committee chair and the mayor. Then you have to get all the other school committee members on board as well. So it's a big job to really manage the relationships that are needed for decision-making not to mention the overall community and really trying to rally the community and build political will around a common agenda that is coherent to our school leaders so that then they can enact any policy or strategy or strategic initiative that the school district is trying to achieve. I think this is a great point. I mean, just thinking about, you know, superintendents who will come in the future, is there some advice you would give them there about how much time it takes to manage the relationships involved in making education work in the city? And are there conflicting things coming at you that you need to be able to manage through as as a leader as well? Well, absolutely. I think most large urban school superintendents understand this, particularly after the pandemic, right? I mean, people who didn't have these kinds of difficulties and challenges of differing voices into the mix, you know, such as masking and vaccines and that sort of thing, and whether you should go remote or not go remote, that was thrust upon many superintendents across the nation who really hadn't had all of this rancor previously in terms of managing the political challenges. I've been fortunate, having been commissioner, to have a full Republican legislature, you know, of the House and the Senate and having to develop deep relationships late into the evening trying to get deals for my Democratic governor. So I know how very difficult, and I had government shut down my first year of being commissioner. So I I really do recognize the challenges of navigating many differing views. But what's different in Boston is the views are really quite different. And particularly after George Floyd was murdered, there are very different held views around historic policies within the school district and approaches to the education of our children. And I think that the mismatch sometimes makes it much more difficult for a superintendent to navigate gracefully through all of those differing voices and come to a common agenda around the really nuttier issues that are systemic within the district to really close gaps for Black and brown children. 
Yeah, I think that's so important what you're saying because that friction, one, has got to be hard to lead through and manage, but but also it probably inhibits the speed at which we can make change happen as a district overall. Is that a fair thing to say? Well, that depends. You know, if you are able to bring around a common consensus, I do think that you can have change really quickly. You know, unfortunately, we had the pandemic that was interfering with so much of what we were trying to do. But I think we were really going toward a common consensus on some of the deeper systemic issues within the district around equity. And so I think you can do that if you really bring people to the table and try to ensure that you are listening to all those voices. Because what I've found in my career, and it's been over 30 plus years, is that people may disagree with your policies, but if they feel like they've been included and they feel like their voice has been heard, they understand when you have to make student-centered decisions moving forward. So talk briefly about the pandemic, because it sideswiped all of your initiatives. And you talk a little bit about reacting to that, managing through that. How was your experience? And where do you think it leaves us in this moment at the end of another school year? Well, none of us thought that we would ever be closing down all of the nation's schools. That was quite a shock to all of us at the moment. And, you know, we jumped into gear to really do what we had to do to feed children, to re-co-create with our school leaders and our teachers how we would actually just completely shift our educational practice so that students could get what they needed and then provide for families and community and house some of our families. You know, there's just so much that we were able to accomplish during that time. It's hard though, right? It was extremely hard. And I think it was really hard on our families. You know, I thank my families all the time for stepping up and being our great partners. You know, we always say families are our children's first teachers, but during the pandemic, they really were. Uh, We didn't have a lot of the masking wars. You know, we didn't have a lot of the vaccine wars, you know, that went on. Our families knew and we, we communicated with them. You know, I talked to a colleague of mine in one of the larger districts within Commonwealth, said, how many family meetings did you have for the reopening? She had one and we had over 35 and we do that in all languages. So that's one thing that we do that I don't think many others across the nation are doing to simultaneously interpret our major community meetings and our board meetings to ensure that they have equal access at the exact same time our English-speaking families do. And that's just been something I'm tremendously proud of as one of our strategic initiatives was to amplify voice and cultivate trust. Mm -hmm. And do you think that's something that will continue on in the future? I absolutely do. I do. I think the one thing that I I leave to Boston that I feel really good about is the real commitment to anti-racism within the district and the real commitment to make that actionable. And the one thing that I think that Desi is actually going to find this week is the coherence around that at every level within the organization. It is true that Boston has been a leader in equity prior to me coming, but the level of saturation throughout the district and commitment, I think, is different now than it was in 2019. And do you think that's because the world is a different place? Did something happen under your leadership that shifted the momentum? I think it's both. You know, I think that the pandemic, as hard as it was, it brought us closer together. I think that George Floyd's murder brought us to a different 
place of really realizing that we have to look at our systems and our work together for black and brown children differently. And I think also I've been a champion for equity my entire life. Part of the work that I brought was about the community equity roundtables, the school-based equity roundtables, and use of our racial equity planning tool that was developed prior to my coming. But what I think our leadership and our administration did was to really demand that it be used and to constantly be asking the questions around our Black and brown children and our decision-making and is this serving them well? And then also our commitment around diversity hiring. We've been able to increase our teachers 7% over this time period. And I think it's just critical that we're reflective upon our practices and very deliberate and intentional about becoming an anti-racist organization. You've touched upon some of the, really the accomplishments of your leadership over your tenure as superintendent of the Boston schools. Can you talk a little bit about what, and you, you sort of alluded to this, like what set the stage, like what was starting to happen in the district that you took to bring it to the next level? And can you also talk about what you've begun to set the stage for that you hope the next superintendent will take to the next level? Because this really is a building block of leaders taking on initiatives and implementing them in BPS. Yes, it is. You know, there's a lot of great work that Tom Paisant did. There's a lot of great work Carol Johnson did and Tommy Chang and just successive leaders, you know, and you try to take what's good and you make it better. You know, some of the things that I've really worked on is policy and leadership and governance with the school committee. Even though we've had turnover, we have provided outside experts to come in and support. Ibrahim Kindi worked with our school committee in training. We had governance training with the Council of Great City Schools and still are doing that training with them. This was very important to me when I first came. I was surprised that our school committee didn't have a public-facing document around policy. You know, every time you go in a district, you're handed the policy book. And given my experience as a commissioner and really the way that you can leverage policy to enact change is something that the next superintendent should absolutely carry forward because it's setting up the expectations that helps you to make it easier to hold people accountable to those expectations because they're clear and they're clear throughout the organization. And so I really took a strong focus on policy development and then actionable kind of instructional focus around equitable literacy and really trying to support our students around equitable literacy under the leadership of uh, Drew Eccleson has been just incredible. And Corey Harris on the school side to be able to work with the principals around a common agenda. I've not been secretive about my concern for autonomous schools and their level of performance and their adherence to curricular standards. You know, just some of the practices within autonomous schools that I think contribute to the inequity within the system. Not that autonomy is a bad thing. I think that in Boston, though, there needs to be some sort of bounded autonomy around the freedoms that they have. I believe that you need to kind of have an engineering plan where you have a scaffolding of things that are kind of non-negotiable, like you have to adhere your curriculum to the state standards. And then after that, some reviews and auditing that's done with the district around accountability to their autonomous plans so that they're high achieving. That's one thing we're currently working on with DESE right now is around autonomy and around what that looks like in Boston public schools to ensure high quality. 
We also did work, obviously, on exam schools policies, attendance policies, grading policies, retention policies, and the code of conduct. And one thing that was really important was data privacy and sharing with the BPD and protecting FERPA uh, for our students. And so cleaning up some of those policies that were the most important and critical, particularly through the pandemic, was important. And then there was work on facilities, really raising the alarm to the public who does not walk our 125 school buildings every single day. I can't imagine had I not gotten into every single building leading through the pandemic and knowing and understanding the conditions of our school facilities, which are deplorable, and knowing every single principal and having met them and talked to them and knowing their names was critical to being able to establish trust and work through the pandemic alongside them who they actually had to endure a lot of the first response to the pandemic. So we've got clean water. We've got air conditioning going in this spring. We have replaced all of our filters and purifiers and 12,000 windows. And now we have air sensors in our school buildings. And we publicly report that data out to our public. You know, so there's just a lot of really good facility work. Our bathrooms are clean and vented. So there's just a number of things that I'm extremely proud of that I think the next superintendent can build upon, not to mention the wonderful cafeterias that you all worked with us on so that students could be served fresh food. Thank you, Superintendent. This facilities issue, you have not been shy of talking about this facilities issue and what bold steps need to happen for the future of our school system in terms of our facilities. Would you just touch upon your advice to the next superintendent, to the school committee, to really the city of Boston. What does the city of Boston need to do to ensure that all of our students go to an appropriate educational facility? Since the day I walked in, you know, I was asked really early on, I think it was at the Phelan breakfast group or something, you know, like, what is it that keeps you up at night? And it was that we send our kids to these buildings that don't have playgrounds, that don't have gymnasiums, that don't have libraries. That's another thing I'm going to fix. There's going to be a library in every single school. It's those types of things that kids need. They need gymnasiums to play and be active. They need science labs so that they can have the rigor of science and be inquisitive learners and thinkers and apply their knowledge. And we don't have that for all of our kids and it's just not fair. And so what we need, and I've said this and it's not very popular, but I've said we need a big dig for the Boston Public Schools. You know, call it the big build. I understand that the big dig costs $24 billion It was overrun by politics and all the other stuff that comes with doing a huge, big project. But in the end, you got the Greenway and you have a city that is economically doing well with a AAA bond rating. And I think that this contributed to that. And so I think we need that for our schools. And there are multiple ways that we can fund, I think, probably around $4 billion that we need, maybe five, to renovate put additions on our buildings over the next 10 years, and we could really give our kids something. And that's just not much money in the larger scale of things to really get these capital projects underway for our kids. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit to talk about now the search for a new superintendent, how do you think the fact that Desi's in the schools doing reviews right now impacts the search? Would that have impacted you're thinking around whether or not you applied for the job back in 2019? Of course it does. All the research I did, that never came up for me in my interviews. So it was a huge surprise to me. 
in August when, you know, I got the note that they were going to be coming in September to do the review of the school district. I was like, where'd that come from? You right, know? right. So I knew politically that I would need to deal with this trust issue and this public confidence issue and to get the mayor on board. So I spent all of strategically, I spent most of my time out into the external community, I had over a hundred community-wide meetings or smaller stakeholder meetings, went into all of the schools to build the political will to stave off receivership right away and to get a big, massive investment from the city, which we did. And it did. It staved off receivership and we entered into a partnership because of the strong strategic direction of the district. Now, that also had opportunity costs, right? I didn't get to spend as much time then internally as I would have liked to have spent to have prepared for the pandemic. So had I known the pandemic was coming, I may have switched those things around or tried to spend a little bit more time internally. But my race was to race to stave off receivership for the school district the first time around and build the public will. Yeah, I, there's so many questions going through my mind listening to you because a little bit it feels to me like there are too many or so many cooks in the kitchen that it is very hard to lead this district quickly to something that's better in the future and that it requires some very deep commitment from the city in investment in order to really change the game for our students who will persist here. But we want them to thrive, not persist. Do you have a point of view on what type of person the city needs to bring into the city to take from where you're leaving off and, and help us move forward with some of these initiatives, some of Tommy Chang's initiatives, some of the initiatives from superintendents prior? Well, they need to be able to stay as long as they possibly can. But I hope that folks will judge me by my impact and the legacy that's left with the changes that we've been able to make rather than my seat time. <laughs> and so the thing is, is that the superintendent is going to have to take on really tough issues and they're going to need the cover from their mayor and their school committee. I couldn't be more blessed with the school committee that I have. They have been incredibly supportive through all of the pandemic, through all of everything. They have been just amazing. And they are dedicated professionals who don't get a lot of thanks. And so I think that's been great. And I've been supported through the mayoral transitions as well. Obviously, Mayor Walsh brought me on and we were able to get through the pandemic together and do some pretty remarkable things. And then, you know, just continuing to work with Kim Janey and Mayor Wu on their visions to move the needle forward with the progress that we need to make. And so I think that the next superintendent is just going to have to really be ready for the different political wins that might come in the mayor's office as elections shift and change, as school committees shift and change. You just have to be nimble enough to be able to withstand that if you possibly can and do the best work that you can possibly do for the children and just stay centered on what is best for children and continue to speak your truth about what has to be done within the district. I think this isn't just true of the mayor's office or the school committee. It's also true of DESE, you know, that you have to continue to hold everyone accountable to the outcomes for our kids and what they need. I mean, we've put in place a lot of foundation for what kids need, you know, with the addition of our social workers, our counselors, 
our family liaisons and nurses in schools and instructional facilitators and now school psychologists at the national levels so that those wraparound services now will allow us to build out our hub school model to support the children. And the next superintendent really has to continue to build out the hub school model and the supportive nature. Because when you have a school district that is about 80% kids in poverty and high need, you have to have support systems in place for children so that teachers can actually teach and students can learn. So you take the burden and weight off of the teachers. You build strong, multi-tiered systems of support frameworks, and then you embed that within your school system so that everybody's buying into them, whether you're autonomous or not autonomous school. And these people are the professionals and the teams in place to assure that children don't fall through the cracks. And so we were building that foundation of support for students so that then we can elevate and allow teachers to actually teach in the classroom and focus on instruction. Yeah. And do you, I mean, just to flip the question on you or the the scenario on you, is there any situation where making all schools autonomous would be more effective and creating, because if we're moving to a hub school strategy, does it make sense to have leaders of each hub school environment running things as opposed to this 125 school, extremely diverse district with a big legacy that it sounds like sometimes you're fighting against, would it make sense to cut it up and actually provide more autonomy? One of the things that I, for instance, in East Boston, it was our pilot kind of study because they're just such a contained community there to have regions under a school superintendent. And so we've been able to really accelerate some of our progress in East Boston. They were the first K-5s to go K-6 to fully solidify our pathways. We've now expanded 33 K-5s to K-6s, taken three K-8s down to K-6, and expanded four high schools to 712. So we've also been able to do that transition to really solidify our academic pathway. So we have one point of transition for families. But to get back to your point around regional superintendents, that's something that I had planned in my design to do, but because the pandemic hit. And when we first launched, we didn't want to shift principal supervisors as much. We did a little bit of shifting of principal supervisors to try to get them a little bit more by region. We have a couple more that are by more transformation support, but we've clarified the role of our school superintendents. And I think the next superintendent coming on board ought to really finalize and and move forward. It'll be one of my recommendations to a more regional approach as we move to more walkable schools. I think it's important. That was a huge also part of my strategy was to go to walkable schools to cut our transportation in half. I was going to have a transportation study committee to do that work this December, but we entered into negotiations right at the same time of getting a new mayor. And I didn't want to aggravate any of that with our drivers. So I've held off on the transportation working group. But the one key thing that we haven't got to that Tommy Chang also was uh, attempting to do was around start times, walkable schools, the radius that we use for bus routing. And so I think those are the things that the next superintendent will have to tackle. I I think if we're fully staffed and we get this, this contract now and with the operational changes we've made in transportation, the buses ought to run on time next fall if, cross our fingers, we don't have the labor shortage and we have a full roster of bus drivers. 
Yeah, that's that's such a good point. And I'm curious about that because there are a lot of open job recs now in the district. As you depart in June, how do you feel about structurally what needs to happen within central office? You know, are, are all of the strategic roles filled? Are they the right people? Are all the roles filled in a way that the superintendent kind of just come in and do some of the other work that you were saying is so important in terms of managing relationships with the mayor? You know, the pandemic, and this is not unique to Boston. It is across the nation. I actually wrote an opinion piece about it in the Post that I'm quite concerned about our schools next fall not having enough teachers, school leaders, central office team members, food nutrition workers, as you probably know, following our food, we're stored 112. We'd be serving fresh food at 80 schools right now if we had a full complement of our staff, and we don't. And so that is extremely frustrating. Our buses would be running on time at 94, 95% on time if we had 15 more bus drivers. And it's just, you think, 15 bus drivers, but that constitutes over 1,000 students. So we have to get these 15 drivers. And so that means a good contract for them. And we've been offering and at the table with very good wages, which will make us very competitive uh, across the Commonwealth and also some of the reforms that we need to be able to get the buses running on time. But I think the new superintendent coming on board is going to have to really hit the ground running on hiring. And then and then the other part of the balance is enrollment, which drives budget. And enrollment is going down. Enrollment is that's not specific to Boston. It's happening here. It's happening in other places across the country as well. What do you recommend the city focus on in terms of enrollment? How do we think about that in the future? So this is this is something that I think, you know, as a mother, you walk into a school and what you want to see is a joyful, beautiful, clean building of happy adults where children are welcomed and they have outdoor play areas and gardens and, you know, all of that, you know, gymnasium for them to play in. And so I think that that's a huge deterrent for some families. They just walk in and they walk out. I think another thing is word of mouth and what they know or do not know from other parents about the school. And so I think that that is another piece. And I think the way that we get at enrollment is something that I've introduced with our budget called the quality guarantee. And that is to actually show families first the investments in our facilities and in our opportunities for students and in our quality of education. And then families will start remarking about our schools. That will then make them want to choose the school that's closest to them because families generally don't want to send their children across the the city you know, they want them in the school closest to home with the children that they play with within the community and the families that they know in the community. And so I think that they'll want to go closer to home, but I think our families have a lack of trust around Bill PPS and our facility work, and they don't think that it's actually going to show up. And so I think making a strong commitment with a financial promise is necessary around the quality guarantee and around our facilities and upgrades that we're going to make. And then I think enrollments will improve and kids will start coming back. But I do think that there's just lower birth rates that are just happening demographically. And I think that immigration policies have uh, also uh, impacted because we have less kids coming from out of state, less kids coming from out of country. 
where we have been a gateway city school and have taken in a lot of that. But the previous administration's policies restricted some of that enrollment. Superintendent, what is, you know, we, we often talk about what the work is of the next superintendent and, you know, sort of the building blocks of what to take on. What is your advice also, though, to the Boston community about how to support a new superintendent, right? So, you know, what is the role of the Boston community in helping the new superintendent to be successful? Oh, um, the hardest pieces of being superintendent is the unfair narratives that are written about you and your organization, and typically by omission or by innuendo or rumor. And that I think is what's hardest on a superintendent personally, and then also just for the organization. And I don't think that the community realizes that sometimes their advocacy in the way in which they do it doesn't account for the progress that's being made and the wins and celebrating the wins so that you can build off of those and build momentum and and shift the story that's told about the Boston Public Schools. There are incredibly dedicated talented individuals in this school district who are working their tails off each and every day for our kids. And I think that it's really important for the community to get to know our schools and the real story about what's going on. Certainly there's deep level of work that needs to be done and there are absolutely ways in which we need to improve, but there's incredible work that this community is doing, did before I came, And over the last three years, we've been able to accomplish just the work we've done to clean up our operations is remarkable and it never gets talked about. You know, our facilities, our food nutrition organization operations, you know, our our transportation operations, we still fall short in some of those areas because of the labor shortage. But if we didn't have that labor shortage, I believe the operational changes we've been able to make, I think are, are fairly remarkable. And also on the instructional side, you know, really this deep focus, I think it's the first time in a while that principals have really been committed around equitable literacy and taking on a common agenda, just like when Tom Paisant did the Reader Writers Workshop. This is getting embedded within the community. It's early stages, but I think that it has seeds uh, that are going to bring about a lot of change and outcome for our students. So your tenure is now coming to an end. Were you surprised at what has happened over the last couple of months? And how are you thinking about your tenure through June? What are you focused on? What are you hopeful about for you and for your future? And can you just talk to us a little bit about what 2022 has been has been like for you? Well, I'm as committed to this district as I was the day I walked through Winship Elementary School, the very first school I ever visited. And my job right now is to ensure a smooth transition and to make sure that we're able to solidify all of the wonderful work that we've been able to do. And then to be sure that the next superintendent has everything that they need as we transition. So that's my core work right now. Obviously, I need to pass a budget, (laughs) which is really, really important. And then there's some safety issues brewing up in the community. I'm going to have to navigate those safety issues to ensure our children are safe, work with BPD, work with our SOARS team, and make sure that all of the proper supports are within our community so that our kids stay busy and everybody stays safe. Superintendent, we thank you so much. We thank you for all the incredible work that you've accomplished, and we wish you well in your next steps. So thank you so much. No problem. Thanks so much. 
Thank you for listening to our conversation with Superintendent Brenda Casilius. We hope that you enjoyed the special series of Last Night at School Committee. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. To listen to this full special series of Last Night at School Committee and to view video content, visit bostonsuperintendent.com. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.